me go ahead and read the scriptures for us this morning. Deuteronomy 11. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. 1 Corinthians 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. John 5. I can, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We are in the week six of our series on the catechism. Uh, we're calling it Knowing and Living the Truth. And one of the things we've been inviting you in over these six weeks is to, is to handle, to think about, to reflect on some of the most significant foundational and fundamental truths of our faith. We've gotten to talk about things like, what is our only hope in life and death? And, and what is God? And, and uh, how many persons are there in God? And um, how and why did God create us? And we've gotten to, to delve into some of those significant areas. And, and the goal, the purpose, the reason why we're doing this is because we're longing for us to create this reservoir in each of us. This deep spiritual well from which in times of plenty and particularly in times of want, you have somewhere to draw from, from what is true and unmoving and unchangeable about God, about his son, about his spirit, and about his church. And so that's what we're doing. And so we're in a sense, we're, we're creating, we're digging deeper and deeper and, and broader and broader. And we're seeking to draw in a reservoir, which is why it's so important for us in the process to be putting this into our hearts and mind. That's one of the reasons why we came up with the, the catechism tabletop, which if you didn't get one, there's some on that uh, newcomer table. It's one of the reasons why we're inviting you to create a rhythm of reflecting on these and, and maybe using a day of devotionals to, to actually think about and to, to drive that question, to, to create uh, a rhythm of partnership with your spouse, friends, coworkers, a community group to, to memorize and then to recite to one another the deep truths of God. And now we're at week six, which means that everyone's good intentions have probably come to an end, right? <laughs> I think the, the national rhythm says that every 28 days you have to make either a new commitment or your old one falls apart, which is not a great sign for marriages or anything. But anyway, all that to say is, which is probably why you should go on a date once in a while. But, um, <laughs> but one of the things I want to remind you is that this really matters, is that this is significant and that you don't wanna miss this opportunity to be able to do something together. And our desire, especially while we take these moments in the sermon, is to try and illuminate, to, to broaden, to stretch out some of your understanding, uh, some of your hearts and your life connected into the reality of these truths. And so that's what we're doing. And so uh, this morning, we're gonna to continue to do that uh, with question number six. So um, read the question and the answer with me. How can we glorify God? We glorify God by enjoying him, loving him, trusting him, and by obeying his will, commands, and law. Well, you can see how this naturally comes after the question number four, and particularly the answer, at the end of the answer of number four, uh, which is uh, how and why did God create us? And if you remember the end of that answer, it says, and it is right that we who were created by God should live to his glory. And it is right that we who were created by God should live to his glory. Now, if you've been around the church for any amount of time at all, 
you've probably heard things like, uh, well, you know, we are as children of God supposed to live to the glory of God. Or, or maybe you've heard kind of the famous, by the catechism, um, uh, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, of course, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? So some of you guys are familiar with that. But what does that really mean? What does it really mean to glorify God? If it's the primary purpose of our existence, if it's the chief end, the end of, then it seems like it's a pretty important question to have some clarity around. It's important for us to have in our minds a crystal clear understanding, at least a growing understanding of what it looks like and particularly what it means to glorify God. So what we're talking about this morning is really the fundamental purpose for why we exist. It is the, the why in why are we here? And this is not an academic question. This is not something that's reserved for the halls of philosophy and college campuses or seminaries. This is significant because if you don't have a clear sense of why you're here, of what the purpose of your life is, then you're joining really the myriads of people out in the world who don't know why they're here and are seeking to make the most of what they can figure out. There's a reason why um, Rick Warren's book, when 2002, I believe it was, in the first decade, sold 32 million copies. And some of the reason for that is because it said, a purpose-driven life. And people are like, purpose? I could use me some of that. And people bought the book. People that were Christians, people that were not Christians, people passed this book around going like, finally, I have some sense of what in the world I'm doing here. I'm not nearly as aimless. And yet, it returns there's scope creep on purpose. We crave it. We want to know what and why we exist for, and yet, and yet much of the time we don't know or we don't understand deeply what that looks like. And so I wonder for you this morning, I suspect you didn't wake up this morning going like, what is the purpose of my life? I suspect that's, that's probably what happened. But I would ask you, what, why do you exist? I mean, really, what? What is it, what was God thinking when he made you? What does he desire with you and from you? And honestly, what would, if I asked your spouse or your kids or your coworkers or your close friends, the people who kind of see on the inside, what would they say the purpose of your life is? What, what would be the manifestation of it in the way that you live and talk? It's not easy when we find ourselves being honest with it, and that's certainly what I've been confronted with this week. But whether it's the world or whether it's ourselves, we struggle to find out and, to, rest and, to, and to, to hold on to what it means to have purpose. What is my purpose? Is it to make a name for myself, to accomplish all that I desire in my career or my family? Or is my purpose just to get my kids from zero to 18 and out the door? That's not a terrible purpose. It's just not the biggest one. Is it to do more good than bad? And so then in some ways to, to intrinsically have a sense of cosmic future merit? Is it to have more money left at the end of the month than month left at the end of the money? Is it to prove to a parent or to a sibling, maybe to a friend or to a community, to a boss, that you've made it now, that you're independent, that you've got it going on? And maybe your purpose is, is just to avoid pain, or to maximize pleasure, or, or maybe both. For some of us, maybe our purpose is to, to make sure everyone is getting along, or at least that everyone is pleased with us. And for more than I think we'd like to admit, there are some of us that are 
The purpose is just to hang on, to white-knuckle it through life and to try to the best of our ability to get to the end of the ride, whether it's Jesus coming back or it's our death. But throughout the scriptures, and particularly in Christ's life, uh, the scriptures are very clear that God invites us to live for one purpose and one purpose only, and that's to glorify him. Now, I got to be honest, trying to talk about the glory of God in 30 minutes is like, what? It's been profoundly humbling. It's also been so broad and so vast that I, and what I've been praying for us and for my heart, particularly for you, is that God in his grace would allow us, as we talk about specific areas, that he would circle it in your own heart, that he'd put some, some marker on it. And so I invite you this morning to, to allow, in the best way that you possibly can, to be open to the spirit that he would allow you to see and experience the glory of God and how it can affect you as you continue to walk this out. The risk is that the glory of God is ethereal. It's this idea. It's this thing that yeah, sure, that sounds great. But at the end of the day, it doesn't change anything. My friends, it does. It actually changes everything. So, Lord, help us. Well, um, as I said, glorifying him is the aim of our life. So what, is it, what does it look like? What does it mean to glorify God? Let's just talk about that first. Uh, this is, I think, as good of a definition as any is, it is to ascribe all possible glory and perfection to him. It's to ascribe all possible glory and perfection to him in all our thoughts and actions to aim at advancing his honor and glory in the world, both inwardly in our own hearts and outwardly in our lives. Someone has said that the purpose of our life is to put God on display in all of our lives, in all of our environments, is to put God on display. That is to glorify God, which is why uh, the song, the, uh, Paul writes it this way. He says, so, okay, so listen, Corinthians, whatever you do, whether you drink or you eat, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That's a way of trying to take all the elements of our, of our life, and it's like Paul's taking this silver thread, and he's running it through every environment. This very moment you're in right now, the car ride on the way home, your work, your sleep, and to say, all these things, I'm doing them all to the glory of God. That's the thread that's supposed to link them all together. All this that we do is supposed to be for his, his glory. So that's the what. What's well, the Why? Why? Why is it that the chief end of man is to glorify God? Why is that the goal? Why is that the aim of our life? Well, simply stated, uh, because the chief aim of God is to glorify himself in all that he's made. And so for us as his creatures that he made, it would then behoove us to then be glorifying him since that's the reason why we're made. Uh, Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose. A couple other translations say it this way. It said, the Lord has made everything for himself. So, therefore, it makes sense that since we've been, we've been made for him, that therefore all of our life should be about him, should be to him. And this really takes us back to week one, right? Uh, what is our only hope in life and death? That we're not our own. And we don't belong to ourselves anymore. We actually belong to God, and to his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, why is the purpose of our life to glorify God? Because God has designed all created things to point back, to reflect, and to display his glory. And we, as his prime creation, as the image bearers, have the opportunity to point, reflect, and display in a unique and powerful way. Which is why Psalm 115, the psalmist says, Not to us, Lord, 
Not to us, but to your name be the glory. That's the orientation of glorifying God. It's looking at all things, the thread that goes through our lives and saying, okay, wait, wait, not to us, to your name be the glory. This isn't about me, this is about you. My work is about, not about me, it's about you. All things are to you. Now, there's really two elements to the essence, to the, uh, to the, to the glory of God. It's, it's helpful in understanding this. There's, there's the glory of God in his essence. There's the um, I am that I am. There's who God is in the, in the displaying of, uh, no, sorry, display, in, the, in the actuality of who he is, all that he has, uh, what one author calls the sparkling of his deity, that is so co-natural to the Godhead that God cannot be God without his glory. It is the essence of who he is. So there's God in his essence. There's the glory of God in his essence. And then there's the glory of God in his declaration. There's his, what they call his declared glory. His showing, his making known to the glory that he has through and to and in us. Now, to be clear, you can't add anything to God's glory, his essential glory, right? There. God is glorious in who he is. There's no more to be added to it. If there was more to be added to it, then God wouldn't be wholly glorious and fully glorious. In his essence, there is nothing, no glory that can be added. But we get to participate in the declared glory of God because it's why we were made. So when you think about that, when you think about God, we get to think about the reality, there's nothing I can add to him. And yet, I get to participate in echoing, in displaying, in restating to his created world the reality of his glory. So the question, though, so that's how and the, the what and the, uh, and the why. But the question that we're answering this week is really how. How can we glorify God? Well, the first thing on the, uh, on the catechism says that we glorify God by enjoying him. Now, this is one of the most interesting aspects. It, it was, it, it, I would say that's the right word. It's been interesting this week to think about what it means to enjoy God. One of the things that hit me is you can't make someone enjoy God. You can't make someone enjoy anything, Right? I mean, by, by your will, you can't make it happen. You can make yourself love or have affection, in a sense, have affection for. You can, you can fake it or you can drive your will. It'll be shallow, but all right, I can choose to love. I can push that through. You can even, uh, in a sense, obey by your will. You can say, okay, I'm just going to do this. But you can't just do enjoying. It's something that actually has to be birthed in us. And the connection between this is, so this is the fundamental thing. When God says, okay, when you think about it, I'm supposed to glorify God, this is really tricky. I'm I'm, this, my entire existence is supposed to be focused on glorifying God. One of the ways what that looks like is enjoying him. So this is really tricky. One of the ways that we enjoy him is by focusing on, getting our hearts and minds focused on the reality of what he has done, what his grace is for us in Christ Jesus. And that's true for all the other elements too. So I enjoy him when, when I'm able on the, on, the, on the dashboard of my heart, when I'm able to start to see the imprints of the grace of God and how he has redeemed me in Jesus. That, that's, that's, the, that's the foundational bottom ground of what it means to enjoy him. It's looking at it and allowing it to have effect on us. Okay? So that's, that's as good of an explanation as I can give you for what it means to enjoy him. I think might help you is one of the challenges that comes when we think about enjoying God, or more so, that God commands us to enjoy him, right? He commands us to glorify him, and if some of what it means to glorify him is to enjoy him, then he's commanding us to enjoy him. And if you can't be commanded to enjoy, what do you do? 
How does this work? Well, we're not alone in having struggled with that. Our good buddy, C.S. Lewis, who apparently struggled with almost everything at some point, um, he had a tough time, especially early on in his Christian life, by the demands for God to say, especially as they show up in the Psalms, when they're saying, hey, praise him. Praise God. Praise God in his sanctuary. All of you praise him. And then, of course, God, in his own words, says, you know, um, where is it? Um, God invites us to, to, by his own might, whosoever offers thanks and praise, he honors me. And that vexed him. He was having a hard time. It was a stumbling block to his faith. And this is how he writes it. He's actually, this essay is called The Problem of Praise in the Psalms. And this is what he writes. He says, we all despise the man who demands continual assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, and delightfulness. We despise still more the crowds of people around, every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratifies that demand in them. Thus, a picture at once ludicrous and horrible, both of God and his worshipers, threatened to appear in my mind. The psalmists were especially troubled, troubled some in this way when they would say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord with me, praise him. Um, worse still was the statement put in God's own mouth, whosoever, um, sorry, whosoever offers me thanks and praise, he honors me. It was hideous, like saying, like God saying, what I most want is to be told that I'm good and that I'm great. It was extremely distressing. It made one think what one least should think. Now, this may, same concept may strike you. I've had multiple conversations with people where they're like, does this mean, like, is God a narcissist? Like, does he just always have to hear that he's awesome because he's, like, insecure? I mean, why is all things supposed to be going to him? Why are all praises supposed to be about him? And, and Lewis wrestled with that. And But here's the thing, because, because we think that that God is primarily concerned with us and not himself, we have a hard time here. The fundamental reality is that we don't have a God who's man-centered. We have a God who's God-centered. And that's offensive a little bit. <laughs> He's God-centered. And more distressing still is that we can't fathom how God could possibly love us in the way that we think we should be loved if he is so unapologetically obsessed with the glory and praise of his own name? How can he love me that much if he's primarily, if all of his energies are focused and pointing towards himself? Well, then his eyes aren't on me in the way that I want and must have. He must not love me the way I think he should. Part of his problem, part of C.S. Lewis's problem, um, as he himself confesses in this essay, uh, is that he did not see, and this, let me quote this, it is in the process, this is really significant, it is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to man. It is in the process of being, this is, I mean, this is like a little mind-blowing. It's in the process of being worshipped that God communicates himself and his presence to man. <clears throat> It is not, of course, the only way in which he does so, but, but many people at many times have seen and experienced the fair beauty of the Lord as revealed chiefly and only when worshiping together, which incidentally is one of the reasons why we gather every week, is to have our eyes lifted up and to be focusing on, on him. And in that time, 
We experience his presence. He goes on to say, even, even in Judaism, the essence of the sacrifice was not really for men to give bulls and goats to God, but that by their doing so, God gave himself to man. That's, that's, that goes against all paganism. That goes against all, I, I come and make my offering to God and I appease him, and now he's going to do something for me. Well, that's not how, this is not the God of the Bible. This is not a Christianity. God imparts himself to us by sheer grace, and actually it is in the act of worshiping him, of praising him, of thinking intentionally about who he is, that he meets us and actually allows us to experience his glory, and in so doing, we glorify him. It's backwards. It's not what we would naturally think, because that's not how it works with each other. <laughs> but nonetheless, this is what he does. He's, Lewis here is addressing he's just something really significant. How is it that how is it, or maybe more so, why is it that God needs our worship if he doesn't need our worship? Why does God call for our worship when he doesn't need it? If it doesn't add anything to the essence of his goodness, his self-sufficiency cannot be thwarted. He can't be served by human hands. Nothing can add to his glory. So why does he command us to do that? And I think this is, this is the crux, and this is the part that was like, for me. If it's not for you, it's really okay. We'll get to something else in a minute. <laughs> this is what Lewis says. He says, but the most obvious fact about praise, this, this should change how we worship. I'm not joking. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment or approval or of giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise and that this praise merely ex is merely an expression. It's not merely an expression, I'm sorry, but completes the enjoyment. He had never noticed that the enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise and that the praise wasn't merely an expression, but a completion of it. Now, we do this all the time. Um, if, if there's a new show on TV, kind of like when uh, Stranger Things came out on, on, YouTube, on uh, Netflix and everyone was like, Stranger Things! I mean, it was like, seriously, everyone? Stranger Things? Uh, if there's a new show, if there's a new app that's like helped your productivity at work or, you know, I don't know, your shopping system with your spouse or whatever. Or if there's a new restaurant that you've gone to that you just can't wait to get back, what do we do? We all, we, we, we glorify it. We talk about it with grandeur. We, and in the, in the praising of it, we complete the enjoyment of it, Right? I mean, sometimes you can't get people to shut up about the thing they love, right? I mean, I won't go there. <laughs> Self-edit. <laughs> that was fascinating to me. That, I mean, that, that really blew my mind of what it, this is why, this is why we, when we talk about God with each other, about what he's doing or what he's accomplished, what we see him do, we're glorifying him and we're adding to our enjoyment of him. And if you're not talking about him ever, well, then you're probably not getting to it. You're not enjoying him because you don't you not have a substance of what you're enjoying of him. So let me let me maybe try and say it in a different way. This is this this kind of was, has helped me kind of put it into a different frame because I can think about it specifically. Becky's not here, but um, so if God is to love Becky, my wife, optimally, he must impart the best gift he has to her, right? The greatest prize 
that which is most precious and the greatest treasure, the thing that's most exalted that he has to offer. And of course, that gift for God is, is himself. There is nothing else. Nothing in the universe is as beautiful or as significant, as captivating, or as fascinating as God. So, if God loves Becky, then he will give himself to her, okay? And then he will work in her soul to awaken her to his beauty and all-sufficiency. This is why you can't enjoy God by yourself. He must produce enjoyment in you. You're that dependent on God. I got good news for you. You're that dependent on it. He must produce in you, awaken a beauty and self-sufficiency, all-sufficiency of God. In other words, he will strive by all manner and means of his intensity to expand and enlarge her joy of him. This is why when John Piper says it really uniquely, he says, and I'm going to apply it here, he says that, that God's love for Becky is seen not in him making much of her, but in him graciously enabling her to enjoy making much of him forever. Let me read this back to you, except I'm going to talk about you. That God's love for you is seen not in him making much of you, but in him graciously enabling you to enjoy making much of him. And, and all I know when I, when I read this is I just want to cry out. I don't know if that's what you feel, because I'm like, how? Especially when there's dark days or difficulty, the natural emotion certainly is an enjoyment. How? How do we do this? He must produce it in us. Therefore, our response to him and what glorifies him is to say, I cannot enjoy you on my own, but I must enjoy you. I must have you if I am to enjoy you. Will you produce enjoyment of you in me by helping me see more and more and more of you? And will you use disciplines like coming and worshiping and thinking through the words that are on the screen and going like, how is this true for me? And, and in what ways does this apply? And how great is this about, that this is true about God and make this more true? As we work it into our heart, as we worship with our hearts and our minds and we find ourselves enjoying him. He's built it that way. He's made it that way for you so that you would be most satisfied in him and in him alone. There's nothing else. That's why it doesn't matter. There's tempo. You know, this morning we're, we're without a basis because we have one has mono and one's on his honeymoon. And so we have no basis. And I was like, oh, so it's a quiet morning. You know, it's like, it's pretty mellow, you know. And it doesn't matter. It's not the rhythm of the music that's going to bring glory to God. I promise you that. And there's songs that swell your heart, right? That you make, makes you want to raise your hand, even if you don't raise your hands. That's what happens, right? But no, that's not it. It must be himself. So may we, as you come in on a Sunday morning, or as you prepare, as you're walking into the service, that we would plead with him, God, will you please, by your grace, fill my heart with yourself that I may enjoy you and bring glory to you because it's not unto me, not unto us, it's unto you be the glory. Lord, make it so. Well, we glorify him by enjoying him, and then we glorify him by loving him. Now, we're going to unpack this particularly next week as we talk about the great commandment. Um, but I, I, there's a couple of things that I, I know we're not going to talk about in this particular context that have hit me this week as I think about loving God, glorifying God by loving him. 
That's, that feels practical in particular. One of the ways that we aim for God's glory in loving him is um, when we're content to be outshined by others in their gifts and abilities and successes so long that God may increase and be glorified. There's a, a quote by Thomas Watson. He says, a man that has God in his heart and their gifts, I'm sorry, God in his heart and God's glory in his eyes desires that God should be exalted. If this be affected, no matter whom the instrument, he rejoices. Which all that made me think of was Paul. Paul in Philippians chapter one, he's in prison. It's a rough season for Paul. He's writing these letters and there's people in particular in Philippi who are causing trouble for him. And they're like preaching and trying to pull people away from, from, from Paul. And he writes this in Philippians 1.15. This is amazing. This is one of those things, you just get a snapshot of Paul's heart. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, though, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Check this out. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. He's in prison. People are basically like stealing people from him and talking about Paul. And they're, but they're, they're preaching Christ, and not even out of good motives. I'm sorry, have you been wrong before? This, this snapshot of Paul's heart when he goes, you know what? At the end of the day, God's being glorified. And so like, it is well. I just did as well. I rejoice. I mean, this is that reality. And this is, this is why in our arrogance, we can think that it is only us when we are at our best that have something to offer to God. I've got great news for you. Sometimes when you're at your worst, you can do some of the best work for God because it's him doing it anyway, at your best or at your worst. So whatever gets accomplished, wasn't you anyway. And that's what he's pointing out. He's saying, you know what? These guys are doing out of evil intent. There's actually a bad motives here, but you know, it doesn't matter because I rejoice because God's doing the work and he is getting the glory. To be able to have a vision to say, at the end of the day, he's getting the glory. That's what it means to glorify him. One of the other ways to understand glorifying God by loving him is the idea of being sensitive. This is, this is a, a, kind of a newer thought for me this week. Um, sensitive to his glory, zealous for his glory. In a sense, God's glory being like dear to me as the apple of my eye, something that I would see as precious um, Psalm uh, 69.9, which you're probably familiar with because of the New Testament, says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproach of those who reproach you, God, have fallen on me. Now, this is quoted when, when they say they remembered after Jesus cleared the temple, that they remembered that this was said, that zeal for your house will consume me. But did you check the, the, the end part of that verse? And, those, and the reproach of those who reproach you have fallen on me. It's the idea that, that, there's, that there's this weight that has come upon me because your glory is being thwarted or is being, or is being damaged or is being hampered. 
Um, my son Nathan um, is 23 um, in the Army out in Colorado Springs. And um, a few months ago, he, um, he heard about some just certain elements of reproach and dishonor that had come to me. And um, he is a bit of a warrior poet, this boy. We call him the boy. Um, and, uh, well, he took that pretty seriously. He got, he got relatively intense. He was ready both to fight and to protect. What was he fighting for? Why was he so energized? What was the zeal behind it? Well, he was, he was jealous for my name. He, right? He, he wanted to protect my glory, my glory. And imperfect as it is, that's the very reality of what God invites us into. Now, there's people that have done this in really bad ways, arrogant ways, self-righteous ways. But the reality of me feeling grief over, the, over God's glory being shamed or made little of, that's glorifying to God. That says, I love you so much that when people say or do things that offend the reality of who you really are in your essence or how you've manifest yourself, that offends me. It hurts me. It reproaches me. I hurt because it's doing this and declaring this about you. And this is not true. I think this is like a, 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 a spiritual discipline I don't know much of. But I suspect, and Jay does this sometimes in our elder meetings, he'll talk about it. Like He'll be, be like, yeah, but... Like the name of God, you know? And I'm like, right, you know? But I always feel like I'm a little late to the party, you know? But it's, it's true, right? It's the glory of God. Like it's our God. That we may be grieved. That we may be affected. That we may experience that as reproach unto ourselves because we're so connected to the reality of his glory. Well, we... Um, we glorify God by enjoying him. We glorify God by loving him. We'll say more about that. We glorify God by trusting him. Um, and basically, we glorify him by believing him. I believe you, God. What you said you are, what you said you're going to do, your promises, I believe them. And that, that glorifies him. In Romans 4, 20, Paul, he's speaking about Abraham who received the promises of God. And he said, uh, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Now, if you know the story of Abraham, there was lots of opportunity to struggle with God's promises, delay being one of the most significant one and being a hundred being another one. But it says here that he didn't waver, though he struggled. He didn't waver, and his faith was glory to God. Faith brings glory to God. This is a, a quote I've written down, adding to my desk um, from, again, Thomas Watson. He says this, and I don't know about you, this was amazing. It says, he that believes flies to God's mercy and truth as to an altar of refuge. The imagery is just unbelievable. He garrisons himself in the promise, promises and trusts all he has with God. That's as good of a definition of like what it means to be a Christian as any I've heard. That you fly to the mercy and truth about God because you're not afraid of it. That you, <laughs> it's an altar of refuge. You're safe even though it's a sacrificial place and you engarrison yourself. You're, you're like inside the walls of safety of his promises. All that you have, you trust to him. 
just sounds like Jesus on the cross, right? Into your hands I commit my spirit. All that I have, I'm trusting you with all that I have and all that I am. We've been um, dealing with wills, power, power of attorney and wills and stuff for the last little bit. And I kept thinking about this. The person that you make the executor of your will, those of you who have wills, <coughs> get a will, um, public service announcement, um, is uh, it says a lot about that person, doesn't it? I mean, if you think about it, what you're saying by saying, hey, I would like you to be the executor of my will or my power of attorney, is you're basically saying, I'm entrusting all that I have and all that I am to you. I mean, if I walked over to you and like, hey, listen, would you be willing to be my executor and my power of attorney? You'd be like, wow, seriously? You got nobody else? Um, but, it, but right, you, hopefully you would feel a little bit honored, maybe put upon, but, but maybe honored, right? And you'd, you would feel like, I must trust you. I must, I must think much of you. Well, that's exactly what it means when we trust God is we're making much of him. We're saying, you know what? At the end of the day, I trust you. I trust you with all of it. Come what may, what you say is true, I'm going to hold to is true. And what you say you promise, I'm going to hold to that. What you say is true about you, I'm going to hold to that. I'm going to believe you. And in so doing, we glorify him. Faith knows that nothing is impossible with God and will trust him where it cannot see him. Well, glorifying God by trusting him is basically the, the precursor or the pre-existing reality to condition to what is next, and that is to obeying God. We glorify God, lastly, by obeying him. Now, it breaks it down into three areas, right? By obeying his will, his commands, and law. We're going to be talking a decent amount about commands and law in the, in the weeks that come as we talk through the Ten Commands. Commandments, but I was talking about being I was struck in the mind by the first concept. I was struck in the heart by the second, that we I'll glorify God by obeying his will. You have to think about that for a minute. Obeying his will. What does it mean to obey his will? Well, one of the things it means to obey his will is that when we're content that God, <laughs> that God's will should take place even when it's at cross-section and at odds with what my will is. That's me saying, God, this is what you have brought to my life. This is what you are laying before me or this is what you have brought upon me. And it is your will. And so I am going to, in it, obey your will. Now, we know what it looks like to obey rules and, we know, and, those are, and commands. Those are all real good things. And those are all very important. God's very clear about his commands. But to obey his will means to say, I'm in agreement with and I will follow through and walk through what you are doing and what you've brought about in my world and in my life. Wow. Commands I can keep over here. They may be difficult or they may be high, but, but what has come upon me, what God has willed into my life, that's incredibly uncomfortable. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, um, my father-in-law had a stroke about three weeks ago. And one of the things that this has, where this has come home like in a serious way is, um, is that in that event, our world changed. Becky's and my life just switched. Now, you know, we were teenage parents, so we were really looking forward to getting rid of our kids. And we just did last year. We married them both off and we love you. But off they went, and it was like the dream, right? The empty nesting dream. The dream of like, okay, so now what? I don't know. What do we want to do? Like that, 
this has come crashing in on that in ways I cannot even begin to explain the depth of it. The things that I had decided by my will, the things that I had said, this is the will of Matt and Becky, that God would accomplish this in us. Well, he's kind of going at cross-section with that, pretty hardcore right now. And it has been, it has been really undoing and unsettling. To be able to be like, God, I don't want this. Take it back, redeal, you know, shuffle this up again and redeal, because this, this is not how I want it. There's another, there's gotta be another way. This is not how I want to be sanctified. There must be another way. But this week, as God's invited me into it, he said, this is what I've willed for your life. For your right now, this is what I've willed for you. And I'm asking you, Matt, to obey me in my will. And man, is that tough. Which is why it's so imperative that this is not all about me. You see, like, that, that ultimately I get, I, need, I gotta go back to, if I'm not enjoying him, then he's just giving me a raw deal. And if I don't love him, then at the end of the day, I should be taking care of myself. And if I don't trust him, then I know the best way, and this is not okay. But if all of my life, and all of your lives, and all of the troubles and trials, and all what God has willed into your life right now, and will, will into your life in the years to come, it is his, and it is for his glory and to his glory. And his invitation to us is to go like, because I delight in you, enjoy you, and love you, and trust you, then I'm going to stand in your will, and I'm going to obey and walk in it. And God is glorified. God is glorified in that. There is... There is joy brought to the heart of the king of the universe when we say, God, I will obey your will and your commands. God's calling us to honor our parents, right? Honor our father and mother. That's, one, that's the command he's inviting us to do that. But it's more. See how it's more? So what has God willed into your life? And how is he wanting you to glorify him by obeying what he has willed for you. Which is why I read at the beginning from Jesus' words, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Which is the great news, right? We have in Christ Jesus this great ambassador, the one who's gone before us, who has not only enjoyed God perfectly from eternity past, but he's also loved him deeply and fully like no one else will ever love God from all times, including when he walked on the earth. He trusted him every step of the way in his ministry here on earth, in his life and in his death, and he found himself at the end obeying God's will to the end. Not my will, but your will be done. And that's what we celebrate each week is that God, by his grace, he's actually taken us from a place where we were left to ourselves, and now, because of the gracious gift of Christ, we get to actually, with our lives, glorify him. And one of the things we do when we take these elements is we recognize that. We say, God, because you have purchased us, because we belong to you now, we get to honor and glorify and make our lives go this way, and it is in that that I will be most satisfied. So, Lord, satisfy me with yourself. That's a great prayer, by the way. As you take communion today, pray. 
God, satisfy me with yourself. And he desires to do just that in you, both today, this week, and over the course of our lives. So pray with me. Father, I thank you. You know what you are doing. And you have invited us as your creatures to glorify you, the creator, and that you are going to offer yourself to us. God, may we see you even as we come forward in all of our imperfections and all the ways in which we still are caring for ourselves and seeking our own glory and not your glory. Lord, I thank you for the cross and the perfection of what you lived out so that we may perfectly come before God clothed in your righteousness alone. Father, teach us to glorify you. Glorify yourself in us. And may we, may we proclaim and praise and, and labor to glorify to our own satisfaction, and, but most significantly to the praise of your name. To you be the glory. In Christ Jesus and in the church. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you belong to God in Christ Jesus by faith, then this is your meal, your opportunity to glorify God by taking the elements, the body and blood of Christ for you. So, loved ones, come forward and receive communion. Mm -hmm.